You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. I encourage you to, to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, we as a church really uh, want you to have a Bible. So if you don't have one at home, please take the one that's in front of you. We promise security won't mug you on the way out. Uh, it's important that we all have uh, easy access. So... Like John said, I, I have preached before. It's been a while, so um, I'm hoping my timing isn't off too badly. Uh, it reminds me, uh, a couple of months ago, I was listening to Pastor John MacArthur. He was doing an interview, and the gentleman, uh, they were celebrating Pastor MacArthur's 50 years of preaching. And the interviewer asked him, so, so John, how do you know how long to preach for? And, and John said, well, you know, I've been doing this long enough. I kind of know, I know... Uh, you know, 55, 65 minutes. I'll try not to go that long. 55, 65 minutes. He says, I know when, when I've wrapped it up. And he says, oh, and the gentleman said, well, that's very interesting. And Pastor John said, well, unlike the young Presbyterian minister I had met last month, his technique was he would reach into his pocket and pull out a mint and put it in his mouth. And when the mint was dissolved, he knew his time to wrap up the sermon which was a great technique. It worked for years until that one fateful Sunday when he reached in and pulled out a button. So I'll try not to have a button-length sermon this morning. So, Okay, uh, so uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. And God's word says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we can just bow quick for a prayer. Lord, we just pray that uh, we thank you for the freedom to come and worship you as we are. We thank you uh, for the ability to sing worship songs and praise songs to you. You are worthy of all prayer and praise. We thank you uh, for this word and we just pray for the presence and, and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds this morning. I particularly pray for that. I pray that uh, my words be your words, my thoughts be your thoughts. And if anything I say this morning is not in keeping with your will, I pray that you have it fall on deaf ears. But above all these things, we do thank you for your grace and for your love. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to cover uh, quite a few passages in Scripture. So, so you guys don't end up with um, paper cuts in all your fingers. You just stay here in Romans 8. We've got Scripture that will come up on uh, behind us. So... We're going to start in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about that. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Hearing God's word, it's proclaiming the greatest of all promises. 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We should make this our life verse. This is all we need to keep in mind to live a fulfilling Christian life. Or is it? I mean, it sounds good, right? We should look at a couple things here, though, a little deeper. What does that little word, therefore, mean at the start of the passage? And also, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? And while we're at it, maybe we should ask ourselves what the Apostle Paul is referring to when he says condemnation. I mean, that's a pretty serious word. That's an ominous term. I'll just say that we'll be covering a lot of scripture. So like I said, uh, you guys stay here. We'll have the other passages come up on the screen. So back in Romans 8.1, there is therefore. That word therefore is a conjunction. And when we see that in the Bible, it's an indicator that we need to pay attention to all that's come before it. No, not Genesis. I want you people to still talk to me after the service. But we are going to go back to Romans 1, chapter 1. Being dropped into the middle of a book like this, it, there's a bit of a challenge because we haven't had weeks of, of building up. So Romans 1, uh, 1 to 6, says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong. To Jesus Christ. So here Paul's presenting the facts of the gospel. Just a little recap of how Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament, how he died, was resurrected, and how he claimed his position of power. Paul teaches us we are called to obedience and to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. Also, did you notice how the Trinity is mentioned here? God the Father, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. So these people that criticize the Bible and say, oh, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't in the Bible, they've actually kind of never read it, just saying. So further down in, verses, in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul declares his allegiance to the, to the gospel. He, he writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Next, in verses from chapter 1, verse 16, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul's building a case here for the lostness of humanity and our need for God. For how could we know that we need a God if we don't understand that we're lost. If we didn't know we were lost, we would be lost, literally. Uh, we have friends that are in another church and they're so lost they don't know law, they're lost. So this is what Paul's building here. In the verses from chapter 321 to 521, Paul presents the good news. Salvation of grace, which is the unearned and undeserved favor from God, through faith... Faith is our complete trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross. 
Through the work of Jesus, we can stand before God justified. Justified is a legal term. That means found not guilty. Salvation of grace through faith in Jesus. That's pretty much the tenet of the Christian faith. So next, Paul has a discussion of the freedom that comes from being saved. In chapter 6, verse 1 to 23, Paul deals with the freedom from the power of sin. 623 is the famous quote, the wages of sin is death. And then Paul goes on in chapter 7, from verses 1 to 25, Paul deals with the freedom from the domination of the law. In Romans 7, 7 says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And now here in chapter 8, Paul discusses the freedom to become like Christ and to discover God's limitless love through life in the spirit. So all of that was just to cover the word therefore. Okay, I promise we won't spend as much time in every other word here. But uh, So back in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This does, however, finally bring us to our first sermon point, and that is Christians have no condemnation from God. The word condemnation in Greek is katakrima, and according to F.F. Bruce, it refers to the concept of penal servitude, or the sentencing of a crime. Paul already told us in Romans 6.23 that the penalty for sin was death, but here in verse 1, Paul tells the Christians that there is no sentencing or punishment for the sins that the believers have committed or will commit. There will never be an eternal death penalty for those who have put their faith in the finished work of Jesus. But being free from the condemnation of God does not mean that we are free from the earthly consequences of our sin. Let me, let me share a, something from my life to illustrate. Some of you have heard this already, and I apologize, but uh, I wasn't saved until I was in my mid-40s, and it was a total miracle from God and totally undeserved by me. When I became saved, I was free from God's wrath for the sins I had committed apart from him, but I still had to clean up the mess that I'd made in my life before I knew him. It took some work and some money, uh, but with God's grace, I was able to get right with those whom I had sinned against. When Jesus saved me, I instantly became free of God's wrath, but I had to work hard and take time to free myself from the consequences of the sin I had previously in my life. So what are the markers or guideposts for us to know if we are living a life that pleases God? Paul mentions in Romans 4.14 that the law brings wrath. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. God uses the law to guide us and to help us uh, on his narrow path. When we, as believers, are willingly, willfully disobeying God's laws, we run the risk of incurring God's correction in our lives. So what about those who are not in Christ? What does God's wrath look like? Well, the Old Testament has an example in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 8. We read, At Horeb you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. This refers to the incident in Exodus 32, 19 to 29, 
That's when Moses was up on the mountain, was being instructed by God, receiving the Ten Commandments. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the mountain, Aaron and the other Israelites are dancing and partying and worshiping the golden calf. And what happened when Moses came down? God was so angry, and he found this that was going on. 3,000 were killed. And then the Lord unleashed a plague on them just for good measure. In the New Testament, we are told in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Right now, creation is under a period of grace, and God's wrath is being held at bay by the work of Jesus. But Revelation chapters 15 and 16 show a picture of what God's released wrath will look like. Seven plagues of seven bowls of God's wrath are poured out on the earth by seven angels from heaven. Told you we'd be jumping around a bit. Uh, Now, so what is the fate for the condemned? For those who do not know Jesus on a personal level, Matthew 10.28 raises this disturbing conclusion. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hell. Hell is the destination for those who are found to be apart from Christ Jesus on Judgment Day. This is not a nice thought. We're not supposed to talk about these things on Sunday morning. Uh, But friends, we cannot afford to live our lives ignorant of the outcome that awaits us or our unsaved friends or family. Hell is not popular, but it sure is real. So now we must ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? The first step is to accept Jesus as Savior. John, in 1 John 4.14, wrote, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. God the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. In 2 Peter 1.11, Peter writes, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the verses immediately preceding these in 2 Peter, Peter tells us that we have been invited by God the Father to become partakers of his divine nature. And through our knowledge of him who called us, and because of the work on the cross of his son Jesus Christ, we have been provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom. This is the first step. Jesus as Savior. The next step is to take Jesus as Lord of your life. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And last week, Pastor John taught us in Colossians, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now we must put them away, all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. When we take Jesus as Lord of our lives, we submit our will to his will. 
We submit our ways to his ways, and we live our lives according to his rules for him instead of for ourselves and our wants. I know this sounds difficult and restrictive, and the ironic thing is that as soon as we submit to Christ as our Lord, instead of bondage to a multiple of of rules, we experience tremendous freedom and peace. There's something very freeing about having boundaries and knowing that the one that put those boundaries in place truly loves us and only wants the best for us. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11.30 that his yoke is uh, easy and that his burden is light. What Jesus is comparing his yoke to is the burden that habitual sins put on our lives. My wife and I were just talking the other day and, and I asked her, if she missed the bar days. Like I said, we, we came to Christ later in life. And in my younger days, I was a little too wild. It's not something I'm proud of, and it's not something I recommend for others. But after a while, it was, we thought it was fun at the time, but after a while, it became burdensome because our family were hanging out there. Our friends were hanging out there. And in order to see them, we had to continue doing that. And after a while, it became very much of a drag. And because of that, it's just like all the burdensome sins we have in our lives. Eventually, they drag us down. Now, there is another interesting side to this whole equation uh, of Savior, uh, Lord, Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, refers to a mindset that he calls cheap grace. Or you may be familiar with the term uh, carnal Christianity. That's from the 1980s and 90s. They both refer to the same thing, and that is when a person professes Jesus with their mouth, that Jesus is their Savior, but there's no evidence in their lives of repentant sin. And repenting is the willful turning away from your sinful past and your your sinful ways. So cheap grace, what that means is when you refuse to take that second step as Jesus as Lord, you're actually devaluing his work on the cross. Now, One of the most amazing things that happens when you become saved by Jesus is that we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that when we are in Christ, his spirit will be put in our hearts. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Did you see that? When we are in Christ, we have God in the Spirit living in us, guiding us, opening our hearts and minds to the understandings of the teachings of Scripture. Throughout the book of Acts, we read of the baptizing of the Spirit. We often forget that the Holy Spirit is a personage of the Trinity, and he is just as important as God the Father and as important as Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers us in our walk with Christ. This week I ask that you meditate on that thought, that we actually have a person of the Trinity living inside of us, wanting the best for us and guiding us. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit that saving truth can be illuminated and made known to man. It is the job of the preacher to provide as much light as possible to assist the Spirit. So back in Romans chapter 8, 
Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So in this verse, we see Paul contrasting two types of law, the law of the Spirit and the law of sin and death. I'm going to deal with the second one first. In the Old Testament, we have three main categories of the law. We had the moral laws, we had the civil laws, and the ceremonial laws. These are all the rules and laws that are found in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Those are the laws that seem to bog us down every year in our annual Bible reading plan. Or is that just me? Sorry. Uh, Almost everyone knows the moral laws. We call them the Ten Commandments. These are the moral boundaries that, at a bare minimum, we are to live our lives by. The civil laws address the ways the community was to deal with each other, and it laid out the the, uh, punishment for those that violated those rules. Now, the ceremonial laws, these are the ones that people who like to mock the Bible, they like to quote to believers and, and just to try and prove that we're hypocrites. Those are the food laws that regard eating pork and and shellfish and, you know, that, that uh, law we all live by, by not combining fabrics of two different, or clothes of two different fabrics, those types of laws. Well, the ceremonial laws were specifically uh, for the Israelites, and God used them to sanctify or set apart his people from the surrounding cultures. So these are all the laws that Paul refers to in chapter 7. Of Romans, It's so easy as Christians when we read these laws to think that they don't apply to us. That they are so outdated because we are under a new covenant with Jesus, why should we bother? And it's true, as Christians, the ceremonial laws don't apply to us. We can, however, view them as a pattern for what God is calling us to do. And that is to live a life set apart to him and apart from culture. It is not true that the New Testament tells us we can live how we see fit. As a matter of fact, we are told that the wages of sin is death. God calls us to a holy life, one that will run counter to culture most of the time. For me, it's proof that he only wants what's best for us, always. Back in Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now we can talk about the law of spirit, of the spirit. Paul tells us that this law, the law of the spirit, has set us free from the law of sin and death. For us, those who are in Christ Jesus, we are now under the law of the spirit. And really, this is a whole other series of sermons to explain completely and exactly what this is. But Paul is referring to the entirety of the Christian life in this verse. And he's summing it up under the phrase, the law of the Spirit. To best understand this, I encourage you to read Matthew 5, verses 21 to 48. Not this morning, when you get home. Uh, so that's the teachings of Jesus. And, and if you think of that the more than 600 laws in the Old Testament were difficult to live by, Jesus raises the bar even higher for those whom he has called. The Old Testament tells us what the penalty for murder is. But Jesus tells us that if we have anger in our hearts towards someone, it is the same as if we had committed murder. The rules for adultery are clear in the Old Testament, but Jesus told us men, if we even look at a woman with lust, we've committed adultery in our hearts. These were some of the most difficult teachings that I had to absorb as a new Christian. 
I mean, come on, I can't even look or think or, or be angry without sinning? And we can't, not on our own anyways. And that's the point. We need a new regenerated heart from Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. With those, we can allow Jesus to fill our hearts to overflowing with his love so that we, in turn, will then have enough love to pour out on others and even enough love to pour out onto our enemies. When we walk with Christ, we are growing in our sanctification. Okay, back in Romans 8, now on to verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Paul is telling us here that only God could do what the law alone could not accomplish. I'm going to read a bit out of Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, The author of Hebrews writes, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, every Jewish priest, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So forgive me, that was a bit of a long passage, but what I'm trying to do here is use scripture to illuminate scripture. Back in Romans... So back in Romans chapter three, or 8, verse 3. So now it makes a little more sense about what Paul is comparing here. He is contrasting our sinful flesh with the holy righteous flesh of Jesus. Our sinful nature is so weak against the temptations of sin that our human nature actually weakened the law that God had imposed for our instruction. As a people, the... the Bible describes us as stubborn and stiff-necked and slow to grasp. But here Paul is telling us that our resistance to obeying God's law caused a weakness in the sacrificial system. God did not intend for that to be a permanent system. And he even went so far as to destroy the Jewish temple in AD 70. And that resulted in a permanent end to the sacrifices. But Paul points out that the only, only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus in his sinful, sinless flesh could fulfill and thus replace the law and its sacrificial system. So this begs the question, why have the law in the first place? Well, one answer is in James chapter 2, verse 10. James writes, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. James is telling us that if we try to earn our entrance to heaven through works, and if we manage to keep the whole law but fail in one point, it's the same as if we had failed them all. Galatians 3.21 tells us in the second half of the verse, 
For if a law has been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So why have the law? Well, it's to show us that how we're totally unable to live a life such that we could possibly earn our way into heaven, into the presence of God. We cannot earn this. Remember the definition of grace, an undeserved and unearned favor from God? The law is there to show us how totally and desperately we need a Savior, to show us how complete our need is for Jesus. The law condemns us, but Jesus saves us. The law also acts as a guide on how to live a God-honoring life that assists us in our process of sanctification. We, are, as believers, are to undertake this journey of sanctification. So this leads to our next point, back in Romans chapter three, or Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so for this point, I'm going to get a little technical and perhaps introduce a new way of looking at something. Paul uses the term righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. And what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's flexing his pharisaical muscles. As a Pharisee, Paul would have received extensive legal training, and he had a full comprehension of the topic of the law. So Paul is showing us how Jesus, and only Jesus, could fulfill the law. Just as Jesus claimed in Matthew 5.17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Christian circles, we refer to this whole process as justification, and it's primarily a legal term. But justification has two main elements to it. The first is the forgiveness of sins. Acts 13.38 is speaking about Jesus when Paul and Barnabas are preaching Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. With this forgiveness are the benefits of peace and reconciliation with God. The second element of justification is the declaration of being righteous or just. In Romans 3, 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That he might be just, he being Jesus, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So according to theologian Millard Erickson, Jesus presents his righteousness to the Father for our justification. He also, Jesus also pleads the cause of his righteousness for believers who, while previously justified, continue to sin. So while it is true we are justified as soon as we accept the gift of grace from Jesus, His work on our behalf is not finished because Jesus continues to intercede with the Father on our behalf whenever we sin. 
which brings us to sanctification. Again, from Erickson, sanctification is the continued transformation of moral and spiritual character so that the life of the believer actually comes to mirror the standing that he or she already has in God's sight. So after we've been chosen by God and received his grace, and after we have experienced the regeneration of our heart, and we have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then, and only then, can we begin our work of transforming our habits and lives into the one that is worthy of the gifts we have been given. So in Romans 8, 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All right, final point here. Stay with me. Stay with me. We're almost finished. Uh, you see those words, those two words, in us? When I first read that passage, my mind jumped to the, to the thought, for us, not in us. As believers, we often talk about what Jesus has done for us. We rarely talk about what he is doing in us. This term is in the present continuing tense, and that means that it didn't just happen once. Being a follower of Christ is not a one-and-done kind of thing. It is an ongoing, continuous process of living and growing closer to and walking closer with Christ. Living our lives in such a manner that we demonstrate the confidence we have in the knowledge that there is no condemnation for us who are in Christ. But we can't rest there. Being a Christian is an ongoing work. Christ has chosen to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in us. Walking according to the Spirit looks like this. Because the Holy Spirit is in us, God, the entire Trinity, desires, no, commissions us to live a life worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. The Holy Spirit works in us to accomplish this. We are called to put to death our sinful ways, love others as we love ourselves, and to share the gospel. We are to share God's love. We are to share God's word. We are to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus to the world. And we are to share in the proper worship of God like we've done this morning. And we are to share each other's burdens through prayer and through fellowship. When we step out and do these things, or when we are obedient and step forward to share the gospel with coworkers, friends, neighbors, unsaved family members, or when we step forward to serve and help God in his work, whether it's through service in children's ministry, leading a small group, as an elder, or even as a pastor, God fills our hearts to overflowing with his love. So much so that you can share that love with others. But the best and most amazing thing is, after we've shared that overflowing of his love with others, he allows us to keep a small part for ourselves so that we can go grow closer in our walk with him let me close in prayer oh, father we do thank you for this day we thank you for um, the gift of the holy spirit we thank you for the gift of your grace uh, we do thank you for your love and 
it, it is just so amazing to us that you choose to accomplish your work in us and through us. Um, and again, we do thank you for your grace and for your love. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.